0: it's really coming down to getting good at the one leg straight leg deadlift so we've gone that's an exercise that i keep trying to get people to go heavier we've started to use the u-bar a little bit which allows us to sort of so imagine a trap bar without a back and that allows you to, to load that unilateral pattern i think it's to me, the one leg straight leg deadlift or, you know, what some people call one leg RDL. I hate them. Again, I'm totally anti-Eastern European names for exercises. So it's sort of a one leg straight leg deadlift to us is the rear foot elevated split squat of the posterior chain. So that's basically the way that we're going to train it. But the other thing that I've started to do more of, I'm becoming a bigger and bigger fan of pushing heavy sleds. And this goes into some of the stuff that Cameron Joss was talking about, too. But when you start thinking about posterior chain, sled pushing to me is very akin to the Charlie Francis idea of like the reverse leg press. If you remember in um, Charlie Francis' training system, he showed how his athletes used to do kind of almost a donkey kick kind of leg press with the old Universal Gym leg press attachment. I think the heavy sled does that for you. I've always said to people that to me, heavy sled work is almost like a posterior chain leg press.
1: That was strength coach Mike Boyle speaking on functional athletic posterior chain development. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the freelap Timing System, GymAware, K box, 1080 sprint, and the speed mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The freelap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The Kbox and Ten Eighty Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The ten eighty sprint is being used by great coaches, training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome back for another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. And today, for episode 87, we have the return of strength coach Mike Boyle, uh, who is the owner of Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning in Boston, Massachusetts. He is the pioneer of what we would term functional training, uh, specifically athletic functional training, not necessarily some of those uh, preconceived ideas I think we have of people playing around on balance pads and in the gym. And today, uh, Mike is going to cover a wide range of athletic development topics, ranging from the birth of functional training, at least the terms and what it really means, and digging into athletic posterior chain and speed development. Mike is one of the most well loved, but also at the same time disliked experts in the field, uh, very much so for what he chatted about last time on the podcast, which was how he's abandoned barbell bilateral squatting for athletic development, which is totally a sacred cow in the field, and he made his case for over the years why he no longer uses in his athletic development and one of the biggest things I think one of the key cornerstone points that was covered the first time Mike was on the show was that yes. You can get excellent results in sprinting and vertical jump improvement without the use of the barbell back squat. I think that's I think that's the biggest hurdle that people, if you are going to embrace um, a functional training in the way that Mike carries it out with his athletes, which he has an excellent track record of injury prevention while maximizing performance risk reward. Um, I feel like that's the first hurdle that a lot of people get have to get over because we think athletic performance, we think vertical jump, and you know, maybe at least 10 or 20 yard dash that we think back squat max, back squat to body weight. But when you really look at what Mike's doing, his athletes are getting strong. It's just in a little bit different manner. It's very unilateral based. And for today's episode, we kind of cover the other end of that. So uh, squatting, obviously very, a little more quad and glute heavy versus say glutes and hamstrings, posterior chain, if you will. Um, so today we kind of cover the other side of the coin. Well, if you're abandoning bilateral barbell deadlifts for athletic development where are you going to go and uh, mike shares his expertise on high uh, i would say reward risk (laughs) uh, the opposite of risk reward uh, methods of training the athletic posterior chain so uh, just to really that's something that i'm always interested in if you're listening to this podcast i'm sure you're interested in speed speed development Um, so you know whether it be track speed or game speed for team sports as well as pre- uh, preventing injuries for hamstrings and the, that type of idea. And so uh, we're going to really dig into that. Mike is a great guy to interview. He has a wealth of knowledge and experience, and he's really honed the system in um, getting great posterior chain development. I could tell you, listen to that little blurb on the single leg um, RDL, and you load that thing up, you can really get some hamstrings going. I mean, especially people who they might not hit on a on a bilateral deadlift. And so just just that is such a powerful little anecdote. Uh, Mike is just doing such great work for the field. And so, again, we're going to chat today on on posterior chain development, kind of functional training, the difference between Mike's first early writings in the field and his latest books and how he's progressed over time. We're going to get into a little bit of velocity-based training, and we're going to end with Mike's three go-to lifts for total body or lower body athletic development. So let's get to episode 87 with Michael Boyle. Mike, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here again.
0: It's a real pleasure. I really like to do these. I enjoy them. The last one was a great conversation, so when you suggested part two, I was ready to go.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you back. I mean, shoot, I drew up quite a list of questions. Uh, We definitely uh, weren't able to work our way through all of them, so I'm certainly excited to have you back and get your opinion on uh, quite a few things I was interested in, Uh, the first of which was what are the biggest differences? Uh, well, I should proceed this by saying uh, that first functional training book that you wrote, uh, that was like seriously probably one of the first two or three books that I had purchased in the field and on functional training for athletes. And and that was the first thing that kind of had got me thinking, whoa, like single leg training and pistol squats and not doing just doing bench press for upper body. And But uh, obviously, you've been in this game a long time. And what are the biggest differences between the, that book and the newest uh, Functional Training for Sports book. Basically, it's probably a big question of how you've progressed over time, but what are the biggest differences between the two?
0: The, the biggest difference, it's really funny because, uh, and I've told this story a couple times before, but probably not here. Ted Miller from Human Catics came to me and said, we want you to redo this book, and, and I was very uh, probably arrogant in my answer in terms of, I was like, the book is fine. There's no need to redo the book. It still sells a couple thousand copies a year, people still read it and then he very politely said to me would you just read it again for me and the reality is you never read your own books you sort of write stuff and then it's gone and I read it and I was like, this book stinks <laughs> and the big things were foam rolling was not even in there the word wasn't even in there the word mobility wasn't even in there so I think if you looked at the biggest change probably actually related to the warm-up the the pre-workout stuff and then the second largest there was a lot of stuff in there about bilateral squatting and teaching squatting and that chapter changed really drastically i think and i don't have the book in my hand but i think we ended up changing the whole lower body chapter chapters because they initially it was sort of knee dominant hip dominant and i think we went to to more of a a general introduction and talked a little bit more about where uh, we are. I am now from a thought processing standpoint in terms of squats versus deadlifts, you know, not loading squats anymore. There, there's just a, there's a real significant difference from one book to the other enough so that although they did call it, they called it new functional training for sports as opposed to functional training for sports, but they did label it second edition. And the reality is, it's almost a completely different book, pretty much from start to finish.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, just kind of reading through, well, I, I had the electronic version, so um, over the years, I, I definitely did notice some of those. And I think the one I actually probably spent the most time on, just paging through, was probably the the middle edition. I, I had that on my Kindle on my phone, and and yeah, the differences were uh, pretty substantial in that regard. I know we talked last time too about your. Uh, that that departure and, and the way you've progressed squatting over the years so uh, that's certainly interesting
0: the other big difference too if you had the Kindle edition was the video that uh, I'm assuming the one that you had had the ability to click the links and see the uh, exercises live and even in the print edition they include a link in the front of the print edition that a lot of people miss that takes you to a website that has I think ninety videos all of the foam rolling all the mobility stuff, all of our strength stuff. There's a pretty extensive video library that really makes, uh, kind of dwarfs the value of the actual book itself, to be honest.
1: Yeah, it's really amazing where books have come these days or, or the the ease of accessing information, being able to put those things in there. It's it's really an amazing uh, thing. And uh, speaking of functional training, uh, I, I'm curious, why do you think people seem to be so afraid of that specific term? Like, the re- why do people, why in your opinion do people just immediately tune out as soon as they hear that word? Is it something that, um, I mean, I'm just, I'm just curious myself because I think a lot of coaches have different perceptions. But why are people so afraid of that?
0: I think the biggest reason probably is that we, in the beginning, so if you look back, and I guess it's probably the 2000s, I think people were, functional training was, bosu balls and airX pads and blow up discs and all this stability balls and that's what a lot of people that's what sort of they i would say the hardcore crowd associated functional training with and even so did i when human mechanics came to me for the first book and probably i would say it was 2002 or three and said we want you to write a book on functional training i my literal response was i'm not i'm not sure i know what that is And they said, well, we think what you do is functional training. And I said to them, so I can write a book just detailing what we do and you're going to call it functional training for sports. And their response was, yes, you're going to, you can write, write any book you want the way that you want to write it. The title will be functional training for sports and we'll put it up. So in some ways I got a chance to at least define functional training as I saw it and sort of say to people that it wasn't about you know standing on a stability ball or doing things you know one eye one leg one eye closed kind of stuff but more just about and I've said this over and over again the application of functional anatomy to training and I think this is where in a lot of ways the kind of early Gary Gray influence really influenced me in terms of we were retaught anatomy and I think that was a really really big thing to be able to look at this and say okay We used to think that the quadricep extended the knee. We used to think that the hamstring flexed the knee. We used to think that the abdominal muscles brought your shoulders towards your hips. And then we started to realize, no, that's not what these muscles do. That's just what they told us in class. And to me, that's what made me start to look. Also, I started to look at things. And I don't even know if they were in that book, but the ideas of anti-rotation, anti-extension, anti-lateral flexion, suddenly looking at these muscles and realizing that in some ways it's not the action, but it's the prevention of action that really is what we're looking at. So I just felt like somewhere during that time period, and I don't know, I should probably look back and see when I went to like the first Gary Gray seminar and heard him talk about function, I came away thinking, Wow, this is this is different.
1: Yeah, in many ways I almost look at it as uh well when people talk about functional training in, in a in a bad way, they're always like, Oh, the the guy standing on the two bosu balls who's you know juggling or doing arm curls and there's always this straw man mentality to it, but I'm like I never I never see videos of that I mean, you may be LeBron James, you know, doing his thing before games or something like that. But I don't ever really see people posting training videos that. So I I hear people make those straw man comments sometimes like, what in the world are you talking about? I do. One of my friends actually recently who works at 24 Hour Fitness had mentioned that uh, she had seen like some, you know, just lay people like standing on medicine balls doing stuff. But no coach, I don't know. I feel like the actual percentage of coaches who are doing that thing is really not very high. And I, I don't know why people just like to go immediately there. Uh, in their minds when they hear that word
0: i think that's what they remember i think and there was a lot of that even and it was funny because when i initially wrote the book some people came out and were very critical of the book and said functional training you know that's a bit the book is a waste of time it's all about you know that stuff standing on bosu balls and standing on stability balls and blah 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 and i actually wrote back to one of the people whose names i won't mention because it doesn't do any good to sort of character assassinate on a podcast but this was a really prominent author who had criticized the book and I wrote back I said you didn't read the book I and I told him I said there were 100 exercises in the book 10 of which involved a stability ball or some balance component and said so that means 90 percent of the book was not sort of balanced stability related and I said the book had plyometric progression progressions in it it had olympic lifting in it it had Um, squatting in it but it also had these at that time I think strange one-legged exercises that people were a little bit uncomfortable with and I think what happens is people get uncomfortable literally they're uncomfortable when we get them out of their comfort zone and we're still going through that now this sort of when you say that single leg squatting makes more sense than double leg squatting that really tweaks somebody who's got that kind of old school mentality They've got, I would say they're the guy with the poster up in the wall about squatting. You know, I forget the I should I could pull it up on my computer, but it's the one, you know, about the big weights and the big guys and chalk flying and you know, you need to be squatting. And it's like, actually, nah, you really don't, and you're probably not made to do it, and you're probably gonna be way better off on one leg. And and if you're that guy and there's a lot of that guys in our field, it rubs you the wrong way. So as a result, you take the broad stance of I'm totally against. The whole thing you know anything mike boyle said is i'm against
1: <laughs> yeah i i can see how that totally works and i was gonna say as well like your description of functional training is probably closer to the spectrum like you look at like Verkashansky's works and dynamic correspondence training and special strength for athletes um, and that i mean that could almost just as well be called functional training because it was very purposeful training for specific athletic outcomes And, but I mean, if you would have called that functional training in, in our American society, people may very well have have laughed at it or equated it to something else. Like just because that seems to be what people want to do. But I, again, I found almost, I almost find your way of doing things in many ways closer to that than what people would have their perceptions be.
0: Exactly. And that's where you look. If you look at Bosch's stuff, very similar. If you look at Bodenschuck's stuff, very similar. These are all guys that have a skewed double leg sort of heavy loading powerlifting style training for years and have been having extremely good results with it but i i honestly believe we're very slow learners and we're very much entrenched in the why can't we just do what we've always done type of mentality and that's just the way that it is
1: yeah. Yeah. I, I People have a hard time with change in many, many regards. Uh, one of the things I wanted to chat with you about in terms of some of your training methods and ideas that I've heard people throw this out there. I think I actually asked Kevin Carr this uh, when he was on the podcast back a, a while ago, but I remember reading a coach talking about single leg training. Like if all you did was single leg training, and, and I've heard this too. And I've heard, I think Franz Bosch has talked about this topic or idea at some point. I don't know if it's a podcast or what, but that if you have an athlete who operates on a single leg and all they do is single leg training, uh I've seen some strength coach say, like, oh, you know, you could overwork your TFLs or glute meds or something. Like if all you did was single leg and you didn't do bilateral squats and deadlifts and those things in the weight room. And are there any potential drawbacks if all you did was single leg training in the weight room? I'm I'm cut I'm guessing that was a kind of a um, I'm not really sure what to say about that question but if it's not a very good one in the sense of the way I word it but is there any potential drawbacks you could see or have seen at all by doing only single leg work
0: you know I don't think so to be perfectly honest and I've not seen that it would be interesting to see and because I'm sort of uh, working my way through Bosch's book a little bit at a time it's it's a seriously dense book and I don't think it's particularly well translated so it doesn't make it a really easy read so that may be in there somewhere but I would say no. I don't think – and again, what I've realized is that it's amazing the lengths that people will go to to try to rationalize what they're doing. And this is – the other one that people said was that you know, hormonally, you won't get the hormonal response. And then I listened – might have been your podcast, but I was listening to somebody talk about hormonal response. And they were just saying that that's just not true either. And oh, it was actually um, – oh, it was Pat Davidson. And I, it was on Robbie Bork's podcast. But it was – He was talking about how they've really debunked this whole hormonal idea. And people said, you know, if you don't have 500 pounds on your back, you're not going to get the hormonal response that you need. And I looked and think, you know, why do we see this hypertrophy then, you know, in gymnasts, in speed skaters, in cyclists who aren't doing this? But people just, it's, you talk about the straw man argument, and I would talk about grasping at straws. I think people are always looking as they're losing the battle they start looking for more and more reasons. The, well, what about this? You know, if you don't do some bilateral training, you know, it's like the same thing, I, I published a thing on my strengthcoach.com site that Stuart McGill and I wrote up because McGill had talked about, you may disrupt the pelvic ring with all this single leg training. You may cause some, some torsion in your SI joints or in your ilia. And I didn't think that that was true and I wrote that and basically, you know, I said, and if you kind of go back to Stewart's work, he says, you know, if somebody's using more of an extended rear leg kind of stance, really producing a lot of stretch, they may do that. And, and I basically said, we have not seen that. We've not seen, we've seen less low back pain, not more low back pain, but somebody sort of shifts it around and says, oh yeah, if you just do single leg training, you're going to screw up your SI joint. You know, McGill said so. And it's kind of like so we, we wrote this little piece up basically sort of trying to clarify that for people so that Stuart was saying that's not exactly what I said what I was saying you know is that if you don't do this exercise properly and we were talking about you know if you do it in a back squat position with the rear leg really extended yeah you could probably cause a little pelvic abnormality there but suddenly you say to somebody but if you do it during dumbbells in more of a 90-90 position probably zero chance so I think where I think we're slowly working our way through the obligation, uh, the um, you know the exceptions, the disagreements, and and a lot of that stuff. But
1: I think people will keep for at least for a couple more years popping up with them. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting you brought up the you know, what Stuart McGill had said about the the roofed elevated split squat because I had heard that someone told me that a couple of years ago. And I was like, huh, like I've never. Like, I thought this was something you do to prevent people getting hurt. And, well, I've never had an athlete have any sort of injury like that on the, with the rear foot elevated. And it kind of reminds me a little bit, too, of, um, like, similar. I think, I don't know if it was McGill or someone who had mentioned the barbell hip thrust had this huge shearing force and uh, how it was so bad for you. And then, you know, I talked with Brett Contreras. He's been on the podcast twice, and he hasn't seen any injuries in the SI or anything like that on account of the hip thrust. So I feel like it's so easy to throw – throw things out there and say oh look at this like this is going to hurt you but then you look at the evidence and the anecdotes and it's just not there so i i mean it's really it's an interesting phenomenon And obviously you've probably had athletes do millions of, of reps of uh rear foot elevated split squats so you have the data almost so to speak in front of you
0: yeah and we did and i went out actually when that first came out i went to a bunch of people that i knew who were doing it like Devin McConnell at UMass Lowell and this other friend of mine, Brad Kazmarski, guys who are using it on a very consistent basis. said, has anybody seen this? No one. Not one person had said we were having low back problems or we were having SI joint problems as a result of split squatting, but all you need to do, it's again, it's sort of the, if you just start the rumor, that's all you need to do because then all the people who want to be right will jump right on it in terms of saying, yeah, see, this and one of the things I had said, all of the back injuries that I had seen were bilateral squat related. I went to the unilateral exercises to try to prevent back injury.
1: Yeah, it is so funny. I was just thinking about like the idea with the hip thrust. Like, if somebody, and I'm sure there probably is some research, or you could easily come up with research showing the like stress forces on the back with bilateral back squats, for example. But everyone would still squat, and no one would talk about it. Like it would be, it, people would be like, "Whatever." But as soon as there's something like that on the hip thrust, I don't know what the research is on uh, re- the rear foot elevated, but you see that, and people instantly start using that. And it's just it's very interesting how people select where their that data is coming from, the research is coming from.
0: Oh yeah, like I said, I, I think people and it, you know, I, I love to turn you know, figures lie and liars figure, and I think people will always look for anything that supports their viewpoint. I don't think people look to learn. I think people look to be right and people look to support what they're doing. And I think that's probably what separated sort of me slash Mike Boyle, strength and conditioning from a lot of other people in terms of, I said, I'm not married to anything. If someone can show me a better way, then I'm going to go with the better way. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, I just will sit there and be like, okay. I think I, it, the perfect example, we've started timing 10s kind of a Tony Haller approach because when I listened to Tony, I thought, yeah, we're probably not doing a really good job with our speed work because we're really not making it competitive enough and we need to do that. Instead of looking and thinking, ah, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. It, it was like, no, actually, he probably does know what he's talking about. It's probably better than what we're doing. Let's make our program better as opposed to I think a lot of people take the ostrich programming approach of, hey, let's just stick our head in the sand and pretend this didn't happen. Or worse yet, let's really try hard to defend what we're doing, even though we might be starting to believe we're wrong.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I, I agree with that. You said you're you're timing are you timing fly tens now?
0: Um we, or- we do both. We start with tens and then we would go to, to fly tens. We do mainly just based on logistics, we're doing flying 10s with a 10-yard run-up only because we don't have enough space to do it any other way. But So we basically are doing both. But this winter, we're just doing 10s because we don't have enough linear space in the winter. We rent out part of our running area, ends up getting rented out for some batting cages. So we lose the kind of decel cell area that we need. So right now, it's just
1: 10s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've been living in California so long, I almost forget what it's like to have a training, you know, to, to be training in like the, north, the Northeast or where I'm from the Midwest back when I used to run in hallways for track and field. So, yeah, I totally understand that. But, um, yeah, I, I, lo- I love doing that time work. It's awesome.
0: Yeah. I, I, I just think it's really changed. The thing that it's done um, for us is the engagement factor. It's crazy. I was saying this the other day. In the staff meeting, I took my son and his friend in there, and they're 13 years old. And I think they ran seven tens when they were supposed to run three because they kept one more, one more. Let me see if I can beat that time. <laughs> really, the timing part creates a level of engagement that's just not there when you're doing lean fall runs or ball drops or chase sprints. Or when you're doing the drills, you don't get the engagement that you get with the timer.
1: Yeah, there's something huge to that. I was I was just doing a podcast uh, with Alex Natera that'll be out here soon talking about um he does uh, isometrics uh, using force plates. So like a mid-thigh pole and single leg mid-thigh pole. And he was saying just the difference in output when you can see your number versus when you can't is just dramatic. It's like 10%. And uh, I think it's a si- very similar when you put a timer in front of athletes. And it's just so cool to see what they can do.
0: Yeah, and I need to look at. I've resisted in the same way. I've resisted the Tendo thing because of the cost, and you know I can't. I mean, not that we can't afford, but for us to get two facilities, eight platforms, we're talking about eight thousand dollars to to get Tendo units. So we have not probably gone towards the bar velocity thing, but we've started um, doing the same thing. We started testing vertical jump every week with our athletes the same way with our just jump mat for the same reason because kids really jump harder when you're measuring you could say to somebody do five vertical jumps or five squat jumps or whatever and they might give you five you know they might give you five reps at 80 percent whereas if you say three and three for height you're getting three at 100 yeah
1: that- or 99 or 98 yeah I, I i like that i'm glad you brought that up and I, I mean i think it is more cost effective someone had just asked me this about um like like using velocity-based training in the context of um like french contrast and and weight lifting and jumps and and i just measure the jumps or the sprints i i would rather measure those than weights just because i'd rather measure the thing that's a little bit more specific or more specific i shouldn't say a little bit more the thing that's way more specific and it's it's cheaper to do that too it's it's cheaper to have timing gates and run a lot of athletes through it than have uh, five, four, or eight uh, tendos or whatnot around your gym as well. That's the
0: point that Tony made is that you start looking at people saying, oh, you know, we want to be between you know one and 1. 1.5 meters per second in our lifting or something like that. And Tony's like, flying 10 is 10 meters per second for a fast kid. That's like light years different in terms of velocity-based training. And he sort of makes the case that The best velocity-based training is absolutely positively sprinting. There's no question. And so – and then you look at vertical jumping sort of in the same vein. And we just did – we've been playing around with some stuff in terms of doing some resisted jumping like trap bar jumps and dumbbell jumps on our just jump to try to figure out what the sweet spot might be from a loading standpoint. I think most people are loading too heavy when they try to do their contrast stuff. And as a result – they, they tilt the risk-reward really heavily towards risk. I had a guy, we were talking about it on my strengthcoach.com site, and one of the guys was saying he was at a mentorship thing where they wanted them to trap bar jump with 50% of their max. And he said, I can trap bar deadlift 500 pounds, and they were trying to get me to jump with 225 on the bar. He said, I just tapped out. I said, no thanks, I'm not even going to try it. So I think there is a, there's a lot of interesting stuff that's going to, to go into – this whole velocity based idea i think over the next few years
1: yeah yeah i agree i do think people tend to go too heavy on those ballistic jumps i <laughs> it does turn it when you do those hex bar jumps with the it turns into like a squat with a toe off at the end you know it's not you you lose quite a bit of coordination i think uh, daniel martinez had mentioned um shoot probably 50 episodes ago like when you start jumping and the load becomes too heavy and a bar's on your back then you start leaning forward more as the load increases to jump and it just changes the mechanics of it all. So I would think that would be a factor too.
0: Oh, it changes the mechanics. It changes the safe. The safety is the big thing for me when you start looking at those loads. And then we get into it. I, I covered this in the first book, but the whole idea of – I always talk about percentage of total system load because I think percentage of max is irrelevant because I always said you know, I give the example of a 300 guy with a 300-pound squat or a 200 pound guy with a 400 pound squat. The total system load that's moving is 600 pounds in both cases, but the 300 pound guy is really gonna struggle with 50% of his max, and the 200 pound guy is probably gonna be okay. So I think that's, I think we totally miss the boat when we just base it on load, and I think it's easy for people to say that when you have a relatively homogenous group that has all similar body weights. It doesn't make very much difference. But suddenly when you get into whether it be kids or football players or whatever it is and suddenly you've got these broadly divergent weights. Like for us, we may have our lightest kids under 100 pounds and our heaviest kid might be approaching 300 pounds. And if you just sort of go percentage of their max, it gets a little dicey.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Did you mention that uh, in your very first book when you were talking about loading jump squats or something I, like that?
0: That was one of the things that I said that and it's interesting. No people still haven't picked up on it. I wrote that in 2004, and I still see people recommending percentages of maxes for power development stuff. And I'm like, this is this should not be a complex topic for you to be able to grasp.
1: Yeah, relative
0: you- strength, you know, relative body weight, whatever you want to look at.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. The only other person I've actually heard talk about lifting with appropriated body weight. Uh was was in that old Ido Sport book. You know you know that thing it was like D B Hammer and all that. I
0: never read it, but uh, people always refer to it.
1: Yeah, I was like that's the only time I've heard it. Maybe maybe you're secretly D B <laughs> the one who secretly wrote that book. Yeah. Definitely you, not. They, they
0: said they the guy he's an East German guy. I forget someone told me what his name was and I can't think of it. I could look it up, but uh
1: Yeah, that's the only, but when I heard that, uh, it was the InnoSport book, I think was the first time I had read that and shortly thereafter yours. And I was like, wow, that's really smart. Like that makes good sense. And especially too, like loading, like loading pull-ups too, like of all things, like, and and the weight you have. And like, (laughs) I figured out pretty quick that like the percentage that in, in pull-ups, you know, if 10 pounds is your quote unquote max. Yeah, two like two and a half pounds is definitely not twenty five percent. You know your body weight is a massive factor, and so obviously,
0: exactly. I mean, it's always got to be, and that's what some of the stuff that I find aggravating is just that people the the lack of common sense. Like you said, you read that and you thought, yeah, that makes sense, and I guess that's all. Sometimes I'm looking for people because that's. Even talking about functional training, one of the things I've said is functional training is training that makes sense. You use the word purpose. Functional training is purposeful training, which is when you get into kind of, like you said, the special strength, specific strength stuff. I don't think – it's almost when you look at some of the other things that people do and that we do, it's very nonsensical when you look at it and think, okay, I have all these athletes that do everything on one leg. But I'm going to train them on two legs because that's the way everybody trained powerlifters and Olympic lifters. And you kind of think, that doesn't make any sense because that's not really what we're doing. We're training athletes. These are not powerlifters or Olympic lifters. If they were, I'd be a big proponent of bilateral training. If, if I was training those people, I would absolutely positively be a bilateral person at least for a reasonable percentage of the time. But
1: we don't have any of those people. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, and, and I was just talking uh, with an intern about this. I, I would imagine, I swear that powerlifting as a, I mean, maybe strongman too, but I feel like those two camps are probably the most injured, like injury per hour or, or gymnastics. Like I, shouldn't, I shouldn't generalize that much, but powerlifting is probably one of the highest injury rates if, of all sports for sure. It's like it's not if you're going to get hurt, it's when you're going to get hurt.
0: Right, but if you think, and that's why when I argue with people, one of the reasons we don't tend to do a lot of under five rep stuff is for that reason. And When you get into trying to do 1RMs, and I was a 1RM guy when I was a football strength coach. I've always been a 1RM guy from a testing standpoint, but that's where you're going to get hurt. You don't see somebody get hurt in a set of five. You see somebody get hurt in these sort of maximum effort situations. And I always say to people, if you don't want someone to get hurt, the, the, the less you want them to get hurt, the higher you should keep the reps. If you're looking at it, that's why people said, if you're dealing with professional athletes, I might never go under five if I was dealing with professional athletes because it, it just, it decreases my probability of there being an injury because suddenly at five reps, the highest I'm going to get is 87.5% if we go sort of by the charts of their maximum, and that tends to not be significant enough to to kind of disrupt that myotendin sort of unit. And then you think, where's the other time people get hurt? Sprinting. 100% effort. You start timing people, people pull muscles. You see, I mean, you're in the track world. Who are your most injured, I, from a muscular standpoint, not overuse? It's your sprinters, and it's your short sprint guys. So, I mean, it, it is... I guess it's just a lot of reality that people choose to
1: not acknowledge. Yeah, yeah, I I agree, and yeah, the sprinters too. I was telling somebody like you got to be a fast sprinter too to pull your hamstring. Like no one who's running thirteen seconds pulls their hamstring. You got to be you got to be running um, pretty much under twelve or eleven to really be lighting that thing up. <laughs> but I, I totally agree with you there. And the same thing, um, a lot of my sports like the rep like like my men's tennis team. I usually don't do anything under eight reps with those guys, just because I'm like, you guys don't need, you guys don't need that. Like compared to other other sports or, or for what you guys need, and that's something I've kind of shifted towards as I've got older with a lot of my team sports. At least is is we don't need to be doing these low rep ranges that that I used to back when I was a younger coach.
0: I yeah, no, I think you're you're absolutely right. You, I just, and I think again, you can go to to five and get, I mean. Five, like I said, you, you'd be within thirteen percent of their max theoretically, more than high enough to to produce strength. And as you said, you could—I mean, with most of our my adult clients, I'm between eight and ten almost all the time. It is very rare that I go out of that rep range.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to see. Um, I think a lot of training facilities, especially that would specialize in football, they train their adult clients a lot like their athletes in many cases and how them lift, you know, heavy weights and stuff. And I, I was going to say back to you, I'm glad you brought up the hormonal thing. I know you talked about that in our first podcast briefly. Um, but I find it fascinating because I've thought about that a lot. And I was actually doing some research uh, for for a book I'm trying to finish up. And one of the aspects was the hormonal training side of things. And um, I think, yeah, Pat, I try to remember the Pat Davidson podcast with Robbie. I know Mike T. Nelson Wrote a good article uh for teen Nation not too long ago it was talking about how like pretty much regardless those that hormonal effect dies down after an hour, and the research is so mixed on it and even um I had even seen research that even interval running even going out for forty five minutes and doing on off on off for forty five minutes like running fast running slow raises testosterone by quite a bit. I'm like, okay, like if <laughs> this raises testosterone by quite a bit, I mean it's just silly. And your your um your example of the speed skaters i think is so is huge uh, so that that's just an interesting thing to me and i I've, I've learned a lot as i've kind of pieced through it over time
0: yeah i just i i don't find it to be valid and as i said i find it just to be another one of these arguments that when i'm losing the battle i start pulling out anything that i can and so that becomes a really good one for people in terms of hey you know if you don't have that you know that really and I always say to people do you really think do you think that your leg knows that your back only has half the weight on it when you're doing one leg at a time do you really think that that's actually going on that somewhere hormonally like your left leg is thinking I don't have 500 pounds on my spine I'm not going to respond to this load I just have a hard time believing that that's how the body works and so that it's strictly going to be like how much kind of whatever compressive stress load can I apply here and the more of that I do the greater the hormonal output throughout my whole body will be. That's, that's really illogical just in, in that simplistic view but again as I said I really believe that people are just trying as hard as they can it's sort of like hey, I, I, I want to be right I don't want to give up on this idea I don't want to change what I'm doing and therefore I will look for any and all rationales that I can come up with to kind of what this person is saying
1: yeah uh, so yeah I, I totally find that uh, that true like the idea of that the more I stress my back the more I will uh, get a hormonal output for this movement
0: I mean then are you saying that you know hormonal output has something to do with like spinal nerve stress because I can remember one time years ago when I first started thinking about some of this stuff I read something about that Jason Ferrugia had written Talking about how he had stopped putting heavy loads on the spine because he felt like it was the, the there was a really negative stimulus to heavy spinal loading just generally systemically, and I thought he's probably right. That makes sense. That you know the body probably doesn't like when you're thinking, okay, I'm trying to train my legs, but as but in order to do that, I have to undergo this you know undergo this incredible spinal loading in order to accomplish that, and he just was talking about the idea that he really was trying to decrease spinal loading and I thought wow that makes sense and so again I always think when things make sense I at least start to experiment with them to see do we get uh, And because I always I use the term all the time in terms of good in theory, bad in practice and I want to find out is it good in theory and bad in practice or is it going to be good in theory and good in practice and if we find things where the theory is good and the practice is good Those are things that we stay with.
1: Yeah, I I agree. Uh, Speaking of the back, too, uh, and just I like to steer it a little bit towards posterior chain development. So uh, for the perspective of someone who isn't using a bilateral, uh, you know, loaded, like bar loaded uh, movement on the back, what are your uh, favorite ways? To develop the posterior chain, because I think a lot of people would be like, "Oh, deadlifts, good mornings, you know, all these things." Uh, what are what are you? What's your arsenal when it comes to posterior we chain still, development?
0: The only bilateral exercise we still do is trap bar deadlift. Although we might do more of a trap bar squat, so some people might look at the way that we trap bar deadlift and say that's not really a posterior chain exercise. So I think when you really like, if you're looking at posterior chain it's really coming down to getting good at the one leg straight leg deadlift. So we've gone, that's an exercise that I keep trying to get people to go heavier. We've started to use the U bar a little bit, which allows us to sort of, so imagine a trap bar without a back. And that allows you to, to load that unilateral pattern. I think it's to me, the one leg straight leg deadlift or, you know, what some people call one leg RDL. I hate them again. I'm totally anti Eastern European names for exercises. So, it's sort of a one leg straight leg deadlift to us is the rear foot elevated split squat of the posterior chain. So that's basically the way that we're going to train it. But the other thing that I've started to do more of, I've becoming a bigger and bigger fan of pushing heavy sleds. And this goes into some of the stuff that Cameron Joss was talking about too. But when you start thinking about posterior chain, sled pushing to me is very akin to the Charlie Francis idea of like the reverse leg press. If you remember in, um, in Charlie Francis' training system, he showed how his athletes used to do kind of a, almost a donkey kick kind of leg press with the old Universal Gym leg press attachment. I think the heavy sled does that for you. I've always said to people that to me, heavy sled work is almost like a posterior chain leg press, and it's something that I think I think everybody, like from an athletic standpoint, should be trying to push the heaviest sled they possibly can.
1: Yeah, I, I do think the heavy sleds have a huge strength component to them. I also, I, I'm glad you brought up that uh, Charlie Francis reverse leg press movement. I feel like uh, in today's like Instagram culture and, and booty building culture, like if that, like if that was around today, it's like there was videos of top sprinters doing that movement. I feel like everyone would be doing it. It would be a lot more popular. It's probably safer than a lot of methods too. At least um, I, it's interesting. I mean, I, we don't have a leg press where I train, so I can't really, I don't really do it. But it was an interesting concept.
0: It was. And we used to look at I was going to buy this a machine. If you look up butt blaster, which was effectively like a selectorized machine that was really made to do that. And I actually contemplated buying three of them at one point. The only thing that stopped me was the expense. They were just too much money. And at that time, I think instead we went, I kind of, you know, because, again, the good thing, the good or the bad thing about me is that I've done what everybody else has done. I just did it. A long time ago, so I've kind of gone through the phase. Like, I bought reverse hypers, I bought glute hams when I first read the West Side stuff, you know, and Louis Simmons talking about, you know, the, how vital reverse hypers were. And I went out and ordered a couple of reverse hypers, and then I started to look at them and think, these are really like sort of lumbar extenders. They're not doing exactly what I wanted them to do. Then we started trying to use them unilaterally, and we just found it was really difficult to get somebody. To extend their hip with that long straight lever and do it without impacting their lumbar spine greatly, so we kind of abandoned them, and we bought glute hams, and I love glute hams, but they're not a very user-friendly exercise. They're, I would say, they're generally done poorly, and they're almost too stressful. Like I always laugh when people talk about doing, you know, oh just you know do Nordic lowers, and, and I'm like, have you ever done Nordic lowers? They're incredible soreness producers, and they make me fearful that someone's going to pull a hamstring. Like I'm always trying to think, is there a way – what we actually did in our summer program is we moved, even though like day four for us is an upper body day, and it has glute hams on it because I want to do my glute hams on a day that I don't have to sprint. I'm all done with all my running, and so that I'll still have – the weekend to to be able to come back and recover before the following monday so i don't know i think again you said you know we've the only thing that's changed you know the instagram internet culture it used to be the muscle magazine culture and it used to we used to have to wait monthly to see new exercises now we can see them sort of every second on the second instead but i don't think the the thought process has changed everybody's always looking for What's the new kind of cool way to do this?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. I am glad you brought up the uh, that West side Reverse Hyper Machine because I've I had read similar things about that back in like the early 2000s, and when I actually got on it and used, it, I'm like, this feels like this just feels weird. Like it doesn't feel athletic. Like I feel like like you said, like there's something weird going on with the way that you're extending in terms of like the lumbar erectors and the the back, and I, I definitely like the glute ham uh, a lot more than um than that particular piece I mean, i'm sure for powerlifting and i mean louis simmons uh, being a genius in the world of powerlifting in his own right but for athletes i i don't know i just never really liked using that thing
0: yeah no i i it was funny and i felt guilty because i spent a couple thousand dollars of the university's money to get two of them and then never really used them used them for a very short period of time and every time i watched them i felt like someone was using them wrong and then, after a while, I thought, "God, do I want to spend forever trying to coach this foolish exercise to try to get somebody to make it a hip extension like I want it to be, or do i I eventually just stopped and they kind of stood and sat in the corner and <laughs> took up space.
1: I guess you could use them like, uh, I think Brett Contreras had like a, like that Charlie Francis exercise, like you kneel underneath and you could do some sort of kickback. Uh, maybe that could be the, uh, I, I've, I've, I think I've done that. I had a hard time like squishing myself under the ones that, that we had, but uh, I, felt, I did feel a lot better posterior chain doing that than sitting on top of it and doing the normal movement. Without a doubt. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, uh, so I like the that single leg deadlift too. It makes sense with um, like I like how you mentioned that U bar, and I haven't had the chance to use the U bar yet. It sounds awesome. because uh, one of the things with just doing a single leg straight leg deadlift is uh, like the balance factor. I think it could be tough for some people, or or how do you combat that? And then I'm sure the U bar probably makes it a lot better. What's what's your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I think the big thing is you have to you've got to go through the progression. So we start sort of with a cone reach to try to get people to be able to have the balance to be able to do it and then we eventually work to single kettlebell, double kettlebell and we finally get to the U-bars when when it really becomes a loading issue okay we're having trouble loading this exercise because we don't the person can't hold heavy enough kettlebells because I always said like our goal was to try to get to a weight that made it difficult for you to um, hold on so, like, for me, as a for instance, I got up to a 70-pound dumbbell for the one-leg straight-leg deadlift. And then my concentration shifted much more to holding the dumbbell than it did to doing the exercise. But when I went to 240s, it was still pretty easy. The problem that we got to is that we started to realize that this was we were, when we were doing it with our baseball guys. We had minor league pitchers who were doing 225. It was the same bilateral deficit thing that we saw in – split squat that we were seeing in the one leg straight leg deadlift. Guys were way, way stronger than we ever envisioned they would be. But it's not an easy lift to do with the bar because you've got kind of the shin scraping sort of thing. You get that U-bar, and now you can set up really, really easily and bang them out with no problem at all and not have to worry about the bar hitting the – you know scraping up your front leg. So I think that's where the really big improvement is. But I I almost look – and I always – send people if you have people google or somebody's interested in this look at max shank one leg straight leg deadlift and you'll see a you'll come up with a video of max doing 315 for five in a one leg straight leg deadlift which is a pretty amazing feat of strength and max is i want to say max is under 180 pounds and has a max deadlift bilateral bent leg deadlift I think he told me of like 580 so he's far in excess I always it's my sort of standard bilateral deficit illustration for people where I say hey watch this video and then tell me bilateral deficit doesn't exist and then and really and at the same time see what sort of the the limit of posterior chain strength might actually be it's way higher than what we think
1: yeah, yeah, it's always amazing to me how just how strong some people can be on those movements. I'll have to see if I can find that video. I'll throw it in the show notes. That sounds that I mean, what's the is that pretty close to what you see? Like, what's the most that you'll have athletes put up in that particular movement?
0: I, for us, in all honesty, I think it's rare to see people, I, you know, 135 is a lot. But as I said, when you start thinking about 135 in a straight leg deadlift, now you're talking about a 270 rdl if you were an rdl person so you start looking if you get somebody who can do that you know romanian deadlifts can bang out sets of 10 with 270 275 they get a pretty strong posterior chain so but as i said we had we had pitchers that were up to 225 we had a bunch of our minor league pitchers that would do 225 for five uh, i have not gotten to that point with my athletes yet it, you know outside of these red sox minor league guys and I don't know, if mainly because we just probably haven't had enough time to really, we don't have kind of the year-round 12-month guy anymore or girl.
1: But. Do you ever try to find yourself, like, you get an athlete who's like, oh man, like, I need to squat this much, you know, to feel strong. I need to do this in a bilateral movement. Do you, ever, do you find yourself saying, okay, well, if you do about this in uh, a Bulgarian split squat or single leg, uh, straight leg deadlift... That that equates? Uh, do you find yourself need to you do that for athletes who seem like mentally wrapped around a particular number? It's
0: really interesting. We don't have those people anymore. I think people are so sort of comfortable with our system now, the way that it is, that we tend to not see that. We just don't have um, kind of those people.
1: Yeah. Well, that makes life easy. <laughs>
0: it really does. Yeah. I mean. Our, the good thing is our, our athletes are very kind of invested in our system and and really I think they, they believe they do what we want them to do and it's really rare that the problem that we get into sometimes is when we've got people the, the sort of reverse say I got to go to school and I've got a test in this. and then we have to kind of try to practice for that. So that's more of a problem.
1: Yeah, that's the that's that's the I'll be A little bit interesting when you have to, you're like forced to trade. Yeah, no, yeah, forced and, to trade someone I mean, for that's
0: that. Reality, we are in, we are forced to train those things sometimes. Even though um, I really don't necessarily um, want to do that, we end up having to
1: do it. Yeah, it's like yeah,
0: uh, so I had to look it up. One of my so one of our females. So 32k is what those are our 70s so um yeah i've got one of our female coaches i'm just looking at her video right now doing 140 for five in a single leg straight leg deadlift. this is a female probably 140 pounds so when you start looking at, at those types of loads um you know we would we would be expecting probably a male to to be able to get up around 200
1: yeah, I'd, I imagine that that U bar allows you to lift a little bit more weight than the straight bar as well.
0: Yeah, it definitely does. It makes it, it's the same sort of trap bar effect of allowing you just to be more in the center of the movement and not not have to move around. And this is again where I get into the why do we do things the way that we do? The whole deadlift thing. Like I just had this discussion with somebody else on a podcast. We never deadlift with a bar, ever, because it makes no sense. Because, you know, you've got this old, you know, drag the bar up your shins, scrape your shins, your shins are bleeding, pull your socks up, like all these stupid things that we tell people, or we can just buy a bar where you can stand in the middle of it and you don't have to scrape anything. And we still get, because I go back, I started deadlifting uh, again after reading Barry Ross's Bear Powered. Have you ever read his Bear Powered ebook that he wrote about lifting and training Allison Felix? Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah. I remember that was, everyone was always debating and talking about that back in the, the early 2000s. That was awesome.
0: Yeah. And so when I read that the thing that Barry said, you know, he was talking about kind of being pressed for time and how the deadlift impacted the most muscle because of grip and upper back. And I just remember thinking, damn, he's right. And then it's so this was the discussion I had with somebody the other day. So it ends up where I'm thinking, damn, he's right and we should be doing this. And then I had not been a deadlift person because I was a power lifter. And I used to feel like nobody deadlifts well. You go to a meet, everybody, every deadlift that you see is just ugly, 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 rounded spine. And then one day I realized, if my athletes deadlift ugly, it's because I let them. That's my fault, not their fault. So we should be able to go back to deadlifting and and just be able to say, okay, we're going to deadlift technically well. And that's what we did. We went out, we bought a bunch of trap bars, and we started playing around with this idea of deadlifting again, and it's amazing. Now, deadlift is the only bilateral thing we still do, say 10 years later, because, and some of it was just my reluctance, my resistance to change, my sort of stuck in what I remembered from my powerlifting career in the 1980s, preventing me from using a lift that eventually I found to have really high value.
1: Yeah, I'd say that trap bar deadlift is probably one of my favorite it's it's over time probably become one of my favorite movements uh for almost all of my athletes and just like the with the center of mass changes and goes in line with your center of mass it isn't out in front of you it's just it's just there's so much um it's so much more of an athletic natural feeling movement and i kind of almost fits in i think with a lot of just the the functional purposeful training paradigms why would you have a bar that's out in front of your center of mass when you could have it in line with your center of mass? like this makes uh, the sense even, in the world.
0: Even- that's one of the things I talked about, you know, in the new book, I talked about this whole idea of um, the fact that, you know, some people, some people squat their deadlifts and some people deadlift their squats. And the thing about the trap bar is if you're a, you know, a conventional, more back dominant, more of an RDL type person, you can still do it that way. But if you want someone to lift a lot of weight and they, they would probably in the powerlifting world, they'd be more of a sumo deadlifter. And they would their their trap bar deadlift would much more closely resemble trap bar squat. You know, if you took a picture and said, "What's that pattern?" You'd be like, yeah, "That's kind of like a half squat pattern, except that they have the bar in their hands." And I, you know, one of the things I had said was, "We used to define squat and deadlift. Deadlift, the weight was in your hands. Squat, the weight was on your shoulders. Now we have squat pattern and deadlift pattern, and it's more the patterning than it is where the load is, because in effect." you can trap bar squat and we have some athletes that do. If you looked at them you'd be like, well that's really a trap bar squat except they're holding on to the bar and I'd be like, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> but that's respecting their body type much more than conventional deadlifting would. Conventional deadlifting would probably end up making that person get hurt.
1: Yeah, though no, I I could totally see that. I I don't know what I think it was Mike Robertson's videos over at iFast. He had athletes trap bar deadlifting and it was like a little it was like a little angular piece coming off the bar. It was like almost like a, a little, uh, it was a little piece of metal that had an angle to it. And I, I never asked Mike, but it almost looked like that was designed to have the athletes at a particular shin angle or torso angle. Um, have you ever seen anything like that, or is that something that you, no, tend I've to the coach? Seen that. Yeah, it? yeah, I need to ask him that actually. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. So uh, yeah, um, I was going to ask too. So uh, probably about the last question we have time for today. And so if you had. I always like these these purported scenarios, um, but you have three lifts to develop an athlete. I mean, maybe let's just say it's a basketball or a, a feel a court sport athlete uh, from a lower body or total loading. So no, not upper body, but just lower body or Olympic lifting uh, perspective. What three movements are you going to go to, and why are you going to use them? We're going to
0: clean rear foot elevated split squat, one leg straight like that, without question. I mean, those really those are the bread and butter lifts for us. If you said, if I only get to choose three, because as much as I like trap bar deadlift, I would, I would clearly, if I didn't have a lot of choices, I would much rather be unilateral than bilateral if I had an athlete and I would want that power movement the hang clean because again, I'm a huge, and that's where I go into the whole, uh, it's interesting because George Carverhall posted something the other day, I, after my Simply Faster thing, he said that he used to not teach Olympic lifting to his athletes and make excuses about not having time or short off season or whatever it was. And then he started to realize that his job was basically to deliver the best programming possible, which made him go back to teaching Olympic lifting to his athletes. So I think you gotta look at I just don't know if there's much better bang for the buck. If you got a healthy person who can hang clean, they should hang clean.
1: Yeah, if you have the time to teach an athlete how to do that stuff, I mean, I can't. I've There's so many benefits in the explosive coordination. And uh, if I ask my athletes what lift they like doing the most, it's, I mean, more than I would say 70%, 80% of the time it's an Olympic lift, especially for, I mean, athletes who have any power power to them at all. They just love that stuff.
0: Well, that's what I said. With kids, I mean, it's funny because people, um, you know, my son, I try to get him to snatch, try to get him a dumbbell snatch. I just want to clean. Just, you know, eventually, at some point, I'm going to have to make him start to switch over. But he wants to go in every – You know, he's 13. He wants to go in every day and clean. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to fight that. I'm not going to argue with you and say you have to do a one-arm dumbbell snatch because we want some variety. So you're right. I think that the kids – I just find the athletes – athletes gravitate towards athletic things. There's no question about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I totally agree. I, um, that's interesting too. Like your, your son's on the, on his way towards the Bulgarian training system. He's uh, clean every day and, and, uh, Yeah. His number... Well, the good
0: thing is he only goes twice a week, so that's okay.
1: Yeah. 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 Not every day. Every time he's in, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, that'd be a, probably be a little early, early specialization, right? Every clean, every day system. I used to bench every day. When I was in eighth grade, I'd told, pull my dad's weights up uh, to my, Room and I would bench every night before I had any clue what I and was doing. You probably
0: got to be pretty good at the bench press in spite of doing it all wrong and doing it every day.
1: <laughs> it was definitely my best lift, but I wasn't, I was, uh, yeah, I, I, not, it was, it was a train wreck, but, uh, <laughs> the, the early days, uh, but hey, uh, good, that's good stuff, Mike. Uh, that's all the time I have for this morning or this, uh, this podcast today. But thank you so much for your time, your expertise. Uh, taking the time to answer these questions i think you're just doing so many great things for the industry and i appreciate it
0: well thank you very much for having me i hope you feel better i know this was tough you got up and you've been uh you're probably not feeling 100 percent so i appreciate you getting up and doing it
1: That wraps up episode 87. Hope you enjoyed the show. It's always good having Mike on. We'll be back next week with another great episode. In the meantime, if you enjoyed what we're putting out and you want to help us out, reach more people, uh, share what we're doing, please don't hesitate. Leave us a rating review on your iPhone, Stitcher. Do it now before you forget. There's that like five-second rule paradigm. If you wait more than five seconds, you'll go on to the next thing. So, hey, we'd appreciate if you did that. Also, please visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com for your needs in high-end training technology measuring tools you heard mike talk about flying tens the free lap is one of the best ways that you can get that done i love the timing system love the unit has a lot of other awesome stuff in the store from forest place to gym aware muscle stimulators you name it great blog check them out we'll see you guys next week have a good one